Previously on Transformers University, we looked at the world and pop culture in 1984 that eventually led to the Transformers animated series, and we sat down with former Marvel editor-in-chief and the mastermind behind the origin of the Transformers, Jim Shooter, and now we look back at the start of the Marvel Comics run of the Transformers with the Transformers limited series, Marvel Comics issues number one through four. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Transformers University presented by TFU.info. I am your host, Anthony Brucalli, and today we are going to talk the 1984 Marvel Comics Transformers 1 through 4 limited series. Wink, wink. Uh, but before we do, just want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping around here. Um, first off, if you like the show, if you like the site, Please, please use our Amazon links at www.tfu.info slash Amazon. Uh, you don't have to do anything else, but just use that link next time you go to Amazon to buy something. And uh, whatever you buy will uh, kick back a couple of cents to tfu.info uh, to help us keep the uh, show going, keep the uh, site new and up to date as I continue along with the archive uh, redesign uh, if you haven't checked the site lately, the redesign is now up through 1988, and I am already working my way through 1989, so that should be up soon. Uh, also, if you uh, don't use Amazon that much, or uh, even if you do, uh, please rate and review us wherever you do listen to this podcast. So if you listen to us on Apple iTunes, I know the new layout's a little weird, but if you scroll down past the episode, it'll allow you to... Uh, to rate and review us and if you like the show please give us a nice rating write a little quick review it only takes a few seconds and uh, it helps a lot because it moves us up in the search results and uh, in apple's algorithms same goes for youtube same goes for stitcher google play uh wherever they let you rate and review please do that and lastly if you would like to help tfu.info with some photos uh to help us keep this archive uh, up-to-date, complete, and growing with the uh, huge amount of Transformers that come out every year. Please, just uh, head on over to our help page, tfu.info slash help. There will be an entire list of everything that's missing through 2016, and uh, pretty soon I'll add 2017 and uh, what's coming in 2018 as well. So uh, take a look. Anything you can do to help is always appreciated. And of course... Please feel free to interact with me, with the site. You can catch us on Twitter at TFU underscore info. Uh, leave some comments on YouTube. Send me an email at info at TFU.info. And reach out. Let me know what you think of the show. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. Because uh, uh, I do the show for you guys. So, uh, so please let me know what you're thinking. And uh, we're going to jump into... Marvel Comics 1 to 4, as I said before, and I'm going to take you back a little bit of ways. Back to the early 90s, probably, oh geez, probably around 92, 1992. And I want you to picture it. I, it's me growing up in Queens, New York, going to IS-119 in Glendale, Queens, and uh, walking home to Middle Village with my friends Greg and Corey. 
and uh, often we would stop at Greg's house because his was first along the way, uh, right off of uh, the Long Island Railroad train tracks that were uh, run through Queens. And one day Greg and I are hanging out there on his uh, front porch. Uh, his family rented the uh, top floor of a duplex, and uh, that's where they lived when we were in junior high. And Greg and I, Greg's one of my, um, one of the people that really continued my love of Transformers because he was the one person I knew in junior high when it was kind of, at least back then, was kind of looked at as weird to still have toys. Uh, he had a, a Trypticon, a Sideswipe, and a Mirage in his bedroom. It was the first time I'd seen any of those three figures. And one day we're on his front porch. I don't know how we got on Transformers, but um, he was strictly a cartoon guy had never read the comics and I was still reading the comics at that time whatever I think they were on the end of the run at that point or pretty close to it um in fact I remember Marvel had extended my subscription well past where it was supposed to end and uh I think I was still like six issues from the end of the series and they sent me them for free because I was already a subscriber and uh anyway point is Greg and I got into this probably two or three hour conversation about the differences between the cartoon and the comic and he had this great memory for the cartoon and things that had happened in the cartoon and honestly myself I could only remember a couple of the uh, multi-part episodes uh, in seasons one and two and three and the movie and we would just go back and forth about all these different things and the differences between the two properties and I always look back on that conversation as one of the first times where I just sat and talked with someone about, about Transformers and realized I really enjoy this. And there are other people that really enjoy this and their reasons are entirely different from mine. And that's what started making this fandom fun for me. And so if you're not familiar with the comics, we're going to jump into it right here. And uh, we're going to jump back to uh, issue one, uh, start at the beginning. So you can't talk about issue one of the Marvel Comics run without talking about the cover. And before we get into the art, let's get into the cover price. So the comic was priced at 75 cents in 1984, and I did a little internet research, and in 2017 uh, dollars and cents, that's about a dollar seventy-seven. So uh, just think about that next time you're spending $2.99 on Comixology for something that's not even printed. So the cover art for issue one was painted by Bill Sienkiewicz, who's had a long career in comics, uh, drawing Moon Knight and the New Mutants and many other books for Marvel and DC. He's also painted art for Magic the Gathering for some cards in the Alliance expansion. Uh, Phyrexian War Beast and Soldavi Steam Beast. And the cover's fairly iconic. It features Optimus Prime really oversized over a city uh, with a laser beak flying in and being shot at by Gears and Optimus crushing what appears to be, I guess, Starscream or one of the uh, jets in his hand. And then the faces of uh, what I would assume are Sparkplug and Buster, though they don't really look anything like them. Uh, overlaid on the background. It's uh, it's pretty uh, 
it's pretty interesting the cover it's pretty dynamic in its its viewpoint of what the transformers would be it's pretty dynamic of uh, a viewpoint of what the transformers would be in a real world setting but before we get into the story and the differences between the comics and the cartoon and the origin story of the transformers let's talk a little bit about the creative team behind issue number one now the writing team on the first issue was uh, spearheaded by bill mantlow now now bill provided the plot for the first issue and he was a uh, famed marvel creator in the 70s and 80s uh, most notably he created rocket raccoon of uh many of you may know from the guardians of the galaxy uh, he also left Marvel in the 80s to become a lawyer, uh, particularly a public defender in the Bronx in New York. And uh, in 1992, uh, while rollerblading, he was in a tragic accident where he was struck by a car and suffered a traumatic brain injury from which he has never recovered. Um, and he is still alive today. Uh, his, his brother Mike runs a fantastic website and Facebook support fund for him. Uh, and if you'd like to help out Bill, you can go to BillMantlow.com. That's B-I-L-L-M-A-N-T-L-O.com. Or if you're on Facebook, just search out the Bill Mantlow Support Fund. And uh, they he posts, Mike posts all the time some great photos of Bill. And uh, he likes to keep people updated. So uh, so at the very least, give it, give it a follow. It's some very worthwhile uh, stuff going on there. And uh, it'll do you good to take a look at it. Uh, the script for the issue was written by Ralph Macchio, another longtime Marvel creator. I uh, can't really find much on him, but I do know for one thing, he is not the Karate Kid. The art uh, internally inside the issue was by Frank Springer. Now, Frank was a uh, Silver Age artist who uh, got his start in art drawing maps at Fort Dix during the Korean War. And this will actually play into the story later on. Uh, he drew Batman in the 1960s and was the penciler on G.I. Joe at the time Transformers launched. Uh, most notably about his career, he was the first person to ink Frank Miller drawing Daredevil. Uh, Miller drew, first drew Daredevil in Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man number 27, which was inked by Springer and written by Bill Mantlow. The inker on this uh, book was Kim DeMulder. Now, Kim, he was one of uh, four inkers on the infamous 1990s comic NFL Super Pro number one, and he is currently a teacher at the Kubert School. Nelson Yamtov, uh, usually credited as Nell Yamtov, uh, was the colorist on this issue, and uh, he will be the colorist on the Marvel Transformers run for the entirety of its run, all 80 issues, plus all the limited series that came out during that time. Uh, he is now a writer for Scholastic Publications. So there were two letterers on this issue, the team of Higgins and Parker. Now, Mike Higgins uh, ended up going on to be a comic book writer, and uh, it's an interesting story about him. He went on to write Conan the Barbarian, and one of the most infamous storylines in that book and it's become kind of an urban legend it began in conan issue 232 and the story was about conan telling his son khan tales of his youth these tales contradicted established continuity so much so that 
by the end of the eight-issue arc, Higgins had been removed on the eighth issue and was replaced by an author named Justin Arthur, who uh, turned out to be a pseudonym for Roy Thomas, a more well-known Conan writer. And the final issue, Conan finished his tale to Khan, turns to his wife and says that during this eight-story arc, all the tales that he told, he made most of them up. And that means the story was retconned before it even finished. Rick Parker, on the other hand, continued to be a letterer for a long period of time at Marvel and was the letterer on Amazing Spider-Man from 1979 to 1994. And then in 1994, he actually moved on to draw the Beavis and Butthead comic for about two years. The editor on this issue was Bob Budiansky, and uh, Bob is one of the most important creative minds in the early Transformers comics. Um, and just in the brand and series in general, he wrote all the toy bios uh, on the back of the toys, and he is arguably one of the most important people uh, in the history of Transformers. And the editor-in-chief at Marvel at the time was Jim Shooter. Now, you should go back, and if you haven't listened to it already, in episode two, I sat down with Jim Shooter and talked a lot about the creation of the Transformers backstory and his involvement in it. So let's get into that Transformers backstory because it's very important to note that there's a few things that are notably different from the cartoon. Uh, Not terribly different, at least, but just certainly notably different. And some of these things have had a long-term impact on Transformers fans and fans of the comic. And uh, the first thing is that... uh, the notion that Cybertron is entirely mechanical as set up uh, in the first issue and life had evolved there. And it's important again to note that it's life, not robots. So the Transformers are mechanical aliens um, and not constructs. Uh, and then, of course, there is the line, uh, the famed line, quote, naturally occurring gears, levers, and pulleys. And that line... Uh, has led to much debate over the years, and there's actually a term for it uh, now in the Transformers continuity called a technogenesis, and uh, that is the belief that uh, the Transformers evolved mechanical life from, quote, (laughs) naturally occurring gears, levers, and pulleys. Now, that phrase appeared in the first issue and later comic continuities, both Dreamwave and IDW would uh, latch onto that and use it in uh, other publications. Uh, And that thought, that notion that the Transformers evolved from mechanical life or lower mechanical life um, is something some people do hold hold special. And so for more on that, here is uh, Charles, a.k.a. Big C., from the Transmissions podcast. The original Marvel G1 comics held a special place in my heart. I feel like the Transformers origin story was treated with a little bit more depth and a little bit more, you know, sci-fi realism than the original cartoon origin story. I, of course, had uh, had watched the cartoons first, but reading the comics, you really got the feel that they were trying to give a little bit more reasoning behind what would alien robots do when they encountered life on Earth. Uh, I like the idea that the robots had only experience with mechanical life from their own planet. So when they came to Earth, they didn't even realize that all the organic life was life and and that the machines were just, uh, you know, were just tools by used by the uh, 
the living organic humans. Uh, I always uh, thought that was really interesting that the Autobots had to figure out that the humans were the living beings and the creatures that they had to interact with. Also, when you had the origin on Cybertron, the idea that the robots evolved from naturally occurring gears, levers, and pulleys, I always thought that was a an interesting way to to have the origin of the robots explained as they they actually could have evolved just like life on Earth evolved. I thought that was that was always a a cool way to 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 make the Transformers seem like a real alien race. Uh, and the idea that the Autobots left Cybertron not just to search for new energy, but to actually prevent Cybertron from being destroyed by the asteroid field. Uh, that gave it a, a little bit more uh, purpose for the Autobots' mission. And it, was just, it just made the Autobots seem uh, a little bit more heroic. And you can hear more from Charles on the Transmissions Podcast. You can check that out at transmissionspodcast.com. One of the things he brought up is very important is that the origin story as far as why the Autobots left Cybertron is slightly different from the cartoon established continuity. Um, they did not leave on a search for resources. They left because the war had raged on for so long that Cybertron was knocked out of its orbit and flying freely through space. So it was on a collision course with an asteroid field and the special team that went out was there to clear the field of asteroids and give Cybertron a free path through it and after they were done after they were exhausted is when they were attacked by Megatron and the Decepticons and eventually crash into the nearby planet Earth and it's it's a nice minor difference from the cartoon origin so on page two, there's a very interesting Transformer on the splash page. He is big, he is red, he has become known as Big Red, though uh, he has never really gotten an official name or uh, much more than a few uh, nice little Easter eggs in the background of some other comics. So if you were wondering who that guy is with uh, essentially Trailbreaker's legs and some other random parts on him, that's who he's known as, Big Red. You can look him up on TF Wiki along with A Technogenesis. Uh, there are pages for both of them. Now, there are some other interesting, weird little bits of art uh, floating through the early pages of issue one. Uh, Optimus Prime transforms into his Cybertronian vehicle mode on one of the pages, and it's only for one panel, but uh, it is a very bizarre boxy square with his gun attached to uh, what appears to be where his shoulder would normally be. Uh, the back of the gun is miscolored red, but uh, it is most certainly Optimus Prime's gun. Uh, and then on the next page, there is a version of um, what is clearly Toy Jazz, but with Blue Streak or uh, Prowl's shoulder-mounted cannons uh, standing next to Optimus. Uh, there's also an Autobot Elder who uh, is just blue, and... Um, might bear some resemblance to Alpha Trion in the comics, but it's just a blue-bearded robot. Uh, another interesting difference between the cartoon and the comic is uh, Ravage can talk, which uh, he never did in the original cartoon unless you count his uh, tape-recorded voice. Another interesting note is uh, just before Optimus and his crew are attacked, Optimus wants to uh, make peace with the Decepticons upon his return. Of course, that is... Uh, 
stomped by the Decepticon attack, and uh, eventually Optimus goes all kamikaze with his own ship, even going so far as calling it a suicidal heading uh, on on collision to Earth. And then similar to the TV show, the repair drone scans for life and picks out mechanical life. Uh, the repair bay drawn in this scene is actually the uh, internal repair bay in Optimus's trailer from the toy. Uh, but the word bubble is uh, kind of a mistake on that scene as well as uh, should be Megatron speaking, and I believe it's attributed to Optimus. So it's an interesting bit of foreshadowing in this uh, page as Megatron notes that one of their mightiest is missing, and I just wonder who that could be. Okay, I know who that is. Um, maybe you know who it is, uh, but it's nice that they uh, they were looking to pay off stuff that was going to happen later. And so eventually the Autobots get revived, and that brings us to the roll call page for the Autobots, which has Ironhide and Ratchet in their toy form, which uh, you will not see for, much, for too long. And Gears has a weird character model as well. Bumblebee has a very strict toy-designed head, and uh, Sunstreaker has red shoulders. Um, there's a mistake in the text where Optimus actually calls the ship Auntie, which was the original name planned for it, before it got changed to the Ark. Also, uh, Ratchet says he'd rather be partying, which is such a weird, weird thing for him to say. Uh, he's generally known as the grouchy old doctor, and uh, the idea of him partying seems very weird. Interesting of note is that this roll call page did not appear in the original UK uh, publishing of this issue. And uh, for those of you who are not aware, so in the UK and in Europe, the Transformers comics were published in a much smaller fashion. So instead of 22 pages, they were 11 pages. And so stories would be split up between two issues. So issue one here is actually the UK issues one and two. So plot-wise, the Autobots go out to hunt the Decepticons and, and find out what they're up to, and then we cut away and meet the human element to this story, and that is the Witwickies. Um, much like the Witwickies in the cartoon, the patriarch of the family is Sparkplug, and this is actually the first mention of their last name in either uh, medium. And we have Sparkplug and his son, Buster. Yes, that's Buster, not Spike. Um, and we find out that Buster has some friends, a girlfriend named Jessie and a friend named O. Yes, just the letter O. And the Autobots uh, scout out Earth. They believe the mechanical life form on Earth, the cars on Earth, are the native population, not the uh, humans. And they stumble across a drive-in movie. So the Decepticons attack the drive-in. Prowl realizes that humans are life, not the cars that are in the drive-in movie theater. And Bumblebee gets wounded in the attack. Buster, fleeing, rescues Bumblebee because he hears him scream and takes him home to his father's shop for repair. And that's where the issue ends with Bumblebee in the shop saying, Help me please, I'm dying. And that's the kind of the uh, first issue of the comic. And it's interesting to note because that is 
the way the comic was it had a bit more of a mature tone to it. And for more on that, we're going to go to Yoshi from the Transmissions podcast. If the cartoon of Transformers was geared for kids, the comic book was geared for teenagers. The The stories were a little more brutal. They were a little more real, a little more gritty. I really liked them. You know, when I was when I was growing up reading these issues, I grew up in the Bible Belt in the center of Kansas, and the stories were so different that my my head was my my response to them was these are just stories that they couldn't produce for the cartoon or they couldn't afford to make for the cartoon. This is what they would do if money was no option. And that's how I looked at them for the longest time until my later teens when I I moved closer to legitimate comic book stores and was able to put together the whole collection and read the Transformers stories from beginning to end that I finally realized that the Transformers comic book universe storyline was completely different, was completely separate from the cartoon storyline. So moving on to issue number two, entitled Power Play, uh, there were a few lineup changes as far as the creative team goes. Uh, not a lot, but uh, just two within the book and one outside the book. So inside the book, uh, Jim Salkrup took over as the scripter for this issue from Ralph Macchio, and uh, he is a longtime writer for Marvel Comics, and most notably, he is the uh, editor who hired Todd McFarlane on The Amazing Spider-Man. And letters were done by longtime uh, letterer Janice Chang, and uh, she is still lettering for comic books this day. And on the cover, and this is a certainly an interesting contribution, uh, the cover art was done by Michael Golden. Now, Art-wise, Michael Golden is uh, known for being the co-creator of Bucky O'Hare and the X-Men character Rogue. Uh, he is the first person to draw them, penciling uh, a backup story in Avengers Annual number 10, uh, written by Chris Claremont. Now, he is also known for having done a lot of uh, artwork for Chris Star, the Crystal Warrior, and that is a toy-based comic from the 80s that was published by Marvel. Now, interestingly enough, the cover of Chris Star number 8 had a skull at the bottom. It was a skull with horns on it, and uh, it spanned the bottom of the issue, and that skull was lifted by Glenn Danzig and used as the Danzig logo for the band. And from that... (laughs) I am now going to toss it to the biggest Danzig fan I know, Gabriel Omens, the salty seaman, uh, with his take on issue number two. As we go into issue two, we leave behind uh, ish- pages and pages of exposition on the characters, their origins, and all their various personality traits they try to cram in. Instead, we have more of a straightforward uh, action here. What I find uh, most remarkable uh, is, you know, just looking at the little design changes just between issue one and issue two. Obviously, uh, same artist as Frank Springer. Uh, it seems pretty obvious he's getting updated uh, designs as the issues are being made. If you follow the first four issue arc, you see a noticeable change. Uh, and this one, one, one that really sticks out is uh, Bumblebee's face. Which, uh, if I was to theorize that they were, there was definitely some big uh, changes in what his face should look like. In the first issue, he looks essentially on model for his toy 
right down to the 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 license plate flap in the back. And this issue, he seems to have more of a kind of just his own weird alien head vibe going, which is actually kind of neat looking. But it also looks like Frank is trying to hide his head as much as possible, which is pretty tough since it's a very Bumblebee-centric issue. I think is very intentional as in they didn't know they they weren't done with how Bumblebee was supposed to look and he was meant to be a big character. So it's fun watching uh, what he comes up with kind of a, not quite the toy design, but not quite anything else. And it kind of sticks out. You know, we still have Ironhide and Ratchet in their, uh, in, in, in their full forms with the, uh, the old, the store, the toy style, but they're starting to get legs too at the same time. And I think, I believe by issue four, they look fully like their cartoon models. Uh, other definitely uh, looking ahead to issue three, they've, they've kind of finalized a lot of the designs. So it's kind of an interesting uh, in between as obviously a lot of designs were in flux story-wise. I mean, it's as basic as a transformer origin story as you get, they land on earth, they look for fuel, uh, they get in fights. So beyond all that, just from a historical standpoint, the whole, just watching the art over the first four issues is a very uh, interesting experience. Also, I believe the first uh, mention that they are in the Marvel Universe, at least initially, as uh, O is listening to the radio, which is playing Dazzler, the mutant future X-Men here in about 1984. And uh, be sure to catch Gabe on his YouTube channel, The Salty Seaman, uh, where he talks about uh, military movies, cartoons, the Navy, and occasionally Transformers. Uh, definitely a worth a watch. And it's interesting to note that uh, Dazzler was playing on O's boombox in this issue because uh, Dazzler was originally created by Jim Shooter, and the penciler on most of Dazzler's uh, comic book run uh, in her solo book was Frank Springer. And so diving back into the plot of the story and some of the things we see for the first time, this is the first... Uh, issue to have the pre-title masthead in it telling the origin of the Transformers as four million years ago they came from Cybertron and end up on Earth. Uh, in the plot, very simply, Buster needs Sparkplug to fix Bumblebee. Um, there's an interesting little Star Trek homage in here where uh, Sparkplug says, Blasted son, I'm a mechanic, not a doctor, which is a nice little twist on the old Bones McCoy saying weirdly enough Sparkplug just lets his son drive off to Autobot base after Bumblebee is repaired uh, the Autobots are low on fuel and discuss ways to obtain it and a couple of interesting character notes here Mirage uh, debates whether or not he's on the right side of this uh, battle and uh, feels the Autobots should just take the fuel from the humans uh, the Autobots go to the Witwickies and meets uh, Optimus and then the Decepticons attack and kidnap Sparkplug uh, a couple interesting things here. Sideswipe and Sunstreaker have their vehicle modes swapped in this scene as uh, they fight. And um, Optimus's trailer stays parked off to the side. And some of these pages were actually in black and white in the UK comics. Um, Starscream kidnaps Sparkplug, as I mentioned. The Seps flee. And the bots pass out because they need to refuel. And that's where we're left off at the end of Power Play. And Power Play leaves us into issue three, which 
is clearly most notable for its cover that features a guest-starring Spider-Man and ties the original Transformers limited series to the Marvel Universe. And for more on the Marvel Universe tie-in with Transformers, we're going to send it off to my friend Rob London of the Stasis Pod podcast. Now, Marvel has put out a lot of licensed books over the years, and uh, counting their current Star Wars offerings, they still do. Uh, But the odd thing about Transformers is that most of those books, uh, or rather, some of those books, like Rom or uh, Micronauts or uh, Godzilla, those were all like strictly within. Those were all clearly within the Marvel universe from the beginning, right to the end. Or in the case of books like Star Wars or, strangely enough, GI Joe, those were just never set in the Marvel universe. Whereas with Transformers, the fir- those first few issues are clearly set in the Marvel universe. We see uh, Nick Fury, we see Shield, and uh, in the infamous issue three, we even see Spider-Man duking it out with Megatron. And while there were a couple references later on, I believe we see the Savage Land in issue 8, that's pretty much it for Marvel uh, in those books. And by the end of the series run, uh, certainly there's no way those are taking place in the Marvel Universe. And this comic series being set in the Marvel Universe uh, was really important to some people uh, on the initial run and left a lasting impact on Transformers artist Dan Kana as... uh, he told me in an interview a couple months ago. Well, I got into Transformers because I was a Marvel Comics fan, and then I saw the Gears cover with Spider-Man on issue three, and that actually got me to pick up the comic and pick up a Gears, and the rest is kind of history. I've been following it ever since. I would have loved to have seen more (laughs) Spider-Man and other Marvel characters. Uh, I always felt Marvel Comics with Transformers was was a perfect fit. Imagine Transformers versus the Sentinels or any other you know, cool mechanical things or the X-Men or the Avengers. It would have been a really cool crossover. So issue three is probably the most notable of the uh, and most recognizable of the limited series because it features Spider-Man on the cover, also drawn by Michael Golden. Uh, not a lot of personnel chains on this issue other than Mike Esposito is now the co-inker on this issue. Uh, he was a Silver Age anchor at Marvel and DC, worked on Spider-Man Flash, and most notably Wonder Woman with Ross and Drew. And uh, their art was used on a Wonder Woman stamp in 2006 in the United States. This issue's guest stars Spider-Man in his black costume, fresh out of Secret Wars, also a uh, another brainchild of Jim Shooter. And we find out in this issue that Sparkplug was a Marine and a POW in the Korean conflict. And fittingly, this issue is entitled Prisoner of War. Um, so the Decepts have Sparkplug as a prisoner, and they uh, are using him to create a fuel conversion machine to uh, help them convert Earth fuel into their fuel. And the uh, Decepticons steal a bunch of equipment for machinery to uh, convert to fuel. Uh, Skywarp takes down a military plane during this and converts to robot mode and says, uh, quote, his victims are entitled to see the true face of their destroyer. And that's an interesting uh, thing for him to say because it kind of denotes a bit of honor in his uh, way of fighting, uh, which kind of transcends right now to his current IDW comics 
iteration where he is a member of G.I. Joe. Uh, Ratchet is finally on uh, model with the uh, cartoon, and uh, Spider-Man eventually meets up with Gears, um, fights Gears at first, before they team up. We find out a few things about uh, Rumble and Frenzy. Uh, they refer to each other as brothers, uh, whether or not they are actual brothers or if that's just a phrase. Um is entirely up to you, I assume. Um, eventually, uh, Spider-Man and Gears free Sparkplug from Megatron, but uh, Sparkplug falls off a cliff. Spider-Man uses his webbing to catch Sparkplug as Gears falls to the ground. And so the end of this story is that the Autobots rebuild Gears to the amazement of Spider-Man. And the cliffhanger on the end of this is that the Autobots find out that Sparkplug has given the Decepticons the ability to convert earthen fuel. So, moving on to issue four, The Last Stand. Uh, before we crack the cover, let's talk about the cover artist. And the cover artist is Mark Teixeira. Hit in the air to deep right. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. Now, Mark Teixeira sends a text message into the right field seats. You're and I don't mean the former first baseman of the New York Yankees, Anaheim Angels, Atlanta Braves, and Texas Rangers. I mean the comic book artist, Mark Teixeira, who uh, is most notable probably for drawing uh, Ghost Rider in the 90s. Uh, but his contribution to 80s toys actually goes back to uh, the early 80s with Masters of the Universe, where he had drawn a number of the pack-in mini-comics uh, Inside the issue, there's a slight lineup change as uh, we have Inker's Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey, uh, a team that was together until 1992, worked mostly for Marvel and DC. Aiken uh, had a webcomic called uh, Idiot Force, and Garvey sells a lot of his original work online, including some Transformers pages from later in the series. Uh, they teamed back up recently, and you can find them both at AikenandGarvey.com. Lettering was done by uh, John Workman, a uh, prolific letterer for DC and Marvel, and uh, art director for Heavy Metal Magazine in from 77 to 84. And uh, he was once an extra in the 1998 film Went to Coney Island on a Mission from God, Be Back by Five. This story starts with uh, Huffer, mad at Sparkplug, and uh, Ironhide defends him. Blue Streak... Uh, believes that they should leave Earth and let the Decepticons uh, make the humans pay, which is pretty odd for his character, but uh, the Autobots are pretty mad with Sparkplug going off of issue three's cliffhanger. Uh, in this issue, we meet O's dad, who uh, scares him in a Optimus Prime costume, and uh, O's dad owns a restaurant called Mr. O's, and he calls his son O. Both of those things, very, very weird to me. And uh, after getting hurt trying to flee the Autobots, Sparkplug is rushed to the hospital by Ratchet and Buster. It's not really clear what's wrong with him, but we do find out he might have had a heart attack while fleeing uh, from the Autobots, who were very, very upset with him. Uh, during his uh, unconsciousness, he begins to have a dream about being back in Korea and being in the POW camp. And it turns out his nickname in the Marines was Sparky. So uh, 
looks like the comic book beat the guys at Cybertron illogical to it. As we cut back to the action, Megatron takes a full frontal 15-minute assault from the military and walks away unscathed. And then we find out about one of their most powerful being missing this entire time, and that would happen to be Shockwave. And uh, we find out that uh, in a flashback that Teletran 1 woke up while uh, the Autobots were asleep and uh, scanned Shockwave in the Savage Land and sent uh, five Autobots out there, all of which were scanning biological life in dinosaurs, and those five Autobots would be the Dinobots. So the Autobots are low on power, so they decide to go to the Tubes of Transference. And uh, this is a pretty neat scene where they all line up uh, the Autobots that are going to stay powered being Optimus Prime, Ironhide, Huffer, Blue Streak, and Mirage, and all the rest other than Ratchet on the other side as they transfer their power from one side to the other. The Decepticons, thinking the Autobots are weakened, attack. Mirage gets his arm bitten off by Ravage, which is a pretty pretty gruesome thing in this comic, and it happens more than once. Uh, Optimus will get his arm blown off later in this issue. Now, Sparkplug's flashback continues, and uh, turns out the North Koreans put him to work in their motor pool. And uh, turns out he tampers with their brakes and fuel lines. So uh, as the Autobots are losing this battle, the Decepticons fall, and Sparkplug is uh, shown to be okay in the hospital. And the Autobots realize that Sparkplug had poisoned the fuel process uh, to help them win. But we end up... Even though it's a four-issue limited series, we end up with a cliffhanger as a, quote, ray gun that is 3,500 feet long arrives. And that would happen to be Shockwave. And he takes out all the Autobots, and we're told this is not the end. And for more on the Decepticon victory and the tone of the Marvel comics as a whole, here's my friend Brian Kilby from Radio Free Cybertron. The Transformers, the 1984 miniseries from Marvel. Other than the Spider-Man appearance, I guess the most uh, memorable thing about the first four issues, the miniseries, was the ending. The Decepticons win, which was, I guess, a deviation from the original intended ending. Uh, but I, I guess what I love the most out of this is just how freaking different it was from the cartoon. I read this not long after joining the online Transformers fandom and learning that there was more to the Transformers than just uh, the comics and the TV series and movie. Um, I mean, so the whole world was being opened up to me. Uh, I, You know, I don't think it's my favorite Transformers comic, even from the, the original Marvel run. I think my favorite stuff is still the Headmasters miniseries. But this really holds a soft spot in my heart, and I think it always will. Now, here's what's interesting about this ending is that the Marvel UK run didn't get this ending. So, in uh, the Marvel UK, the last frame was different. Uh, Shockwave does not show up. The Autobots realize that Sparkplug had poisoned the fuel. Prime regrets calling Sparkplug a traitor, and the Autobots pledge to continue the fight. The end. Additionally, in Australia, there was another alternate ending used in the uh, Peter's Ice Cream printing of this comic. And the second to last panel of the book is just extended across the bottom of the page 
um, where the Autobots realize that Sparkplug had helped them save the day, and we end up with the end. So in both those instances, Shockwave does not show up, and the limited series concludes. And thus, we conclude another episode of Transformers University. Again, I am your host, Anthony Brutale from TFU.info, and if you like the show, you like what you heard, please swing on by to TFU.info slash Amazon and use our Amazon links to help us out. And of course, if you'd like to help us in other ways, there's plenty of ways to do so. Swing by TFU.info slash help. Uh, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I am at TFU underscore info and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TFU INFO, TFU info. And that will wrap it up. I'd like to thank everyone that appeared on this episode Rob London, Yoshi, and Charles from Transmissions, Brian Kilby from Radio Free Cybertron, comic artist Dan Kana, and of course the salty seaman himself, Gabriel Owens. And that does it for another edition of Transformers University. Till next time, see ya.